right, if you have a Bible, um, let's turn to the final sermon, the final chapters of 1 Samuel. We will finish up 1 Samuel by God's grace this morning, since the last three chapters do go together. We will finish up 1 Samuel, and then we will spend a couple of weeks uh, just looking at uh, what, what a healthy church looks like. Um, beginning next week, but uh, this week we will finish up in 1 Samuel, uh, the last three chapters, since they do go together. Uh, because of that, uh, we won't be reading as we, as we normally would, um, but uh, we will read the first, the first eight verses um, and uh, then of chapter uh, chapter 29, and then we'll sort of skip around uh, through the other chapters. So if you are physically able to do so, I'm going to invite you one more time to stand with me in order to honor the reading of God's holy and written word. 1 Samuel chapter 29, let's hear the word of the Lord given to us this morning. Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the rearward uh, with Achish, or that's, that's in the rear. Then said the princes of the Philistines, what do, these Hebrews, what do these Hebrews hear? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which has been with me these days or these years? And have I found no, and I have found no fault with him or in him since he fell to me to this day. And the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. And the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go again to his place, which you have appointed him and let him not go down with us to battle. Listen, the battle, he be an adversary to us. For, here, for wherewith should, be, should he reconcile himself to his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, Surely, as the Lord lives, you have been upright and you're going out and you're coming in with me and the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in, your, in, in you since the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's, uh, the Lord's favor you not. Wherefore now return and go in peace, that you may displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? And what have you found in your servants so long as I have been with you to this day, that I may not go fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Let's pray. Father... Here we are, we are your people, assembled under the, the, the word of God, and so may you give us wisdom now, we pray, uh, give us understanding now, we ask, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you, you can be seated. There is an interesting story that took place uh, a little over 200 years ago um, in a town by the name of Feldkirch, Austria. You might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, uh, I found it interesting, and, and to be honest, uh, I, I, I haven't been able to completely verify it, but it's, none the, it's nonetheless very interesting. Uh, in 1799, the armies of, a, of an emperor by the name of Napoleon appeared 
uh, above the heights of this smaller town in Austria, bent on taking over not just the town, but Austria as well. Well, as as it happened, uh, great fear ran through the town, and it was a Sunday morning. It was Easter Sunday morning of all days, and so it, the, uh, the, the people assembled, the town council hastily called, uh, called themselves to order to, in order to figure out w- what should they do. Well, after a lot of discussion, the, the, the pastor of the church who was part of the council rose and he said, my brothers, it is Easter day. We have been considering our own strength. Let us now turn to our God. Ring the bells and let us have service as usual and let us leave the matter in the hands of God. Uh, the story goes that after the council agreed to this, the, uh, uh, the pastor uh, uh, sent to have the bells rung, and the bells began to ring, which startled the, Napoleon, uh, the Napoleon's army because they thought that the bells signified that the Austrian army had arrived in the middle of the night to help the city and fight against his army. And so Napoleon ended up retreating, and to this day, Feldkirch uh, remained uh, untouched by the French armies. Well, it is interesting that uh, whether or not that story is completely accurate or true or not, I think it does go to serve to a greater uh, purpose and a greater reminder that is uh, the theme in which God's providential care is, is exercised over all of the affairs of mankind over all of the lives of his people, as well as those who are not his people, God has been throughout 1 Samuel sovereignly working to provide himself a king. God has been sovereignly working to provide himself with the king that is after his own heart. And as a result of that, David has been protected and as well as Saul has seen great judgment because he has refused to follow the Lord. So this morning, as we close out the book of 1 Samuel, I think the the three chapters, if if we had to put a summary over, over each chapter, I think chapter 29 would simply be protection. Uh, chapter 30 would be um, grace, and chapter 31 would be judgment. Uh, and this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to see God's providential care in the midst of, of, of these three realities. And so let's look at chapter 29 first, and let's see the first part of this. And that is that God exercises providential care over the, all the circumstances of life. God exercises providential care over every circumstance of life. We see this throughout the chapter as we see God using David's lack of faith as an occasion to show his faithfulness. It's amazing, isn't it? That David chose not to be faithful. Remember, David goes over to the enemies of God, right? David, in his, in his faithlessness, in a moment of weakness, in chapter 27, he says, God, God uh, Saul's going to kill me. I'm going to die by his hand. So I've got a great plan. Let's go to the Philistines. Let's go to Achish. Uh, the guy who, uh, who I killed earlier is king, right? Uh, um, uh, Goliath's king. Let's go, let's go be a part of his kingdom. And so David goes. And it is interesting that God has throughout, not just chapter 27, but also here in 29, God has 
God has sovereignly and providentially worked out all things for his glory. Um, God <coughs> worked out David's anxiety over Saul, right? He was fearful of Saul. He even orchestrated, back in chapter 27, David's acquiring of the town Ziklag, right? That gave David a, a base of operations, if you will, a place where David could form his armies, could provide for his men and their children and their wives and their families and protect them and watch over them. It was a good place. It was a place that, that was, a, that was a, a, a fortified place. But even in the attack... Uh, the attack of the Amalekites, and as a result, David's attacking and killing the Amalekites, God is exercising complete and providential care over the affairs of life in chapter 30, as we'll see. And in, in the midst of all of this, we, we see that not only, did, not only is God providentially watching over and guiding David and his men, but God is also providentially guiding and guarding the reaction of the Philistine battalion commanders. And you say, well, but the, but the King James says, says princes. Well, but the understanding there isn't, isn't the kings, isn't the kings of the five, the five city-states, but instead, the understanding there is that of the battalion commanders who have come, who have come to lead the, the Philistine armies into battle against the nation of Israel. And God providentially guides the reaction of these Philistine commanders, these Philistine battalion commanders, to, to react to David and say, Ha, huh, no, we don't want David. No, thank you. We don't want any Hebrews fighting with us. And you may sound, well, that sounds, you may say that sounds really strange, but it's not like they have not seen the Hebrews or Hebrews flee from uh, fighting with the Philistines and going toward Saul. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 14, that's exactly what happens. There, is a, there seems to be a great number of Hebrews who's fighting with the Philistines against Israel when God moves upon their hearts and they defect in the middle of the battle and start fighting the Philistines and it leads to a complete and utter destruction of the Philistine army. So it's not like these battalion commanders are, are they, it's not like they don't know what they're talking about here, right? They don't want any more Hebrews going over to join in the middle of the battle to join Saul and to lead to their destruction. But also, not only, not only have, have they experienced this before, but you've got to remember, David was a man of war who was renowned for his prowess and ability. David's heroism was legendary, right? We might put it up there with some of the greatest commanders and military heroes that we know of today, right? Of those who, who have been celebrated throughout our history, those who have, those who have protected and defended and killed uh, on behalf of, of even our own nation. David's heroism was in fact legendary in every sense of the word. And that's what the battalion commanders remind Akish of. They say, O king, don't you remember of who it was sung? David, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And so the battalion commanders, God is exercising providential care, even over the battalion commanders who say, uh, no, thank you. We do not want David to go with us. Make him go away. We don't want him turning against us and slaughtering us. 
But God would not allow, uh, but, but, but God is even, even providential in over Akish's um, reaction. Because what does Akish do? He tries to settle the Philistine battalion commander's fear. No, 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 no. David is a good man. David is an honorable man, right? Um, after all, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And that's... I think what Akish is probably thinking at that point, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But the battalion commanders, what? They are very suspect of David because David has already deserted one king. He's already deserted King Saul. Why would he not desert another king in the middle of battle? David was also even accused of of potential sedition, right? In 29 here, verses 4 and 5, the battalion commanders are, are very clear with Akish that they think he's going to potentially, he's only there to, 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 uh, let the, for them to let their guard down in the middle of battle. He is, going to, he is going to flip and he is going to attack the Philistines. David was, was even though he was vindicated by Akish, Akish still relented to the Philistine battalion commanders. And, and ultimately the outcome, all of, this, all of this outcome was in God's hands. Because as you look in, ch- in chapter 30, it was so that uh, God would strengthen David. Uh, and then in 31, that God would ultimately bring judgment on Saul for his, for his seeking out the counsel of a necromancer, a witch, a medium at Endor. In, in, in the previous chapter 28. But here's a second reality for us. And that is that, that, that God's providence is revealed in God's stirring up the Amalekites to even raid David's base of operations. Because as we, as we get to chapter 30, and this may sound very strange to us, right? Because we may say, well now, why, why would God providentially stir up the Amalekites? Well, this is a test for David. This is a test for David. Do you remember when Saul was tested with the Amalekites? What did Saul do? Saul said, well, we've kept the best for sacrifice. And, you know, uh, my men, I was scared of them, which wasn't true. But I was scared of them. And, you know, I let them, you know, we we sacrificed everything else but the very best. And we only did that for the Lord. Right. But for David's purpose... Um, and he, he saved the king of the Amalekites uh, and Agag. And it, it was Samuel who ended up executing judgment against Agag. But here, it is God stirring up the Amalekites to raid David's base of operations, his, his town from which he based all of his operations from, his, his military operations, to now stirring them up to test David's heart to stir him up uh, to, to do what Saul should have done from the very beginning. The fact that there are still Amalekites around proves that Saul did not do what God had told him to do. Even in rescuing Agag and not allowing Agag or allowing Agag to live, there are still other Amalekites that were around that Saul should have fulfilled his command by God to destroy them, to bring God's judgment upon them because of their wickedness. But here, God is revealing David's heart and, in or, and stirring up the Amalekites to bring judgment upon them. So let me show you six factors that are here in chapter 30 that reveals God's, God's providence here. First, 
God stirring them up to, the, to raid David's base of operations. I mean, the Amalekites are not stupid people, right? We sometimes look back at, these, at, at, the, at, the, um, at the cultures of this time and think, oh, those are a bunch of Neanderthal fools, right? They didn't know anything, they didn't have technology, but none of that would be true. None of that would be accurate. To think like that would be historically to be very myopic and very limited in our view. There were very, very interesting things going on technologically uh, and even medically during this time throughout the cultures of the Middle East. You had the Egyptians, uh, even prior to all of this, who had, who had already uh, uh, refined brain surgery and all types of other surgeries. So let's not pretend that these people were fools. These were not Neanderthals. These were very smart, strategic, and cunning people. If you don't believe me, go to the Middle East today. And you will see that this is culturally still the case. Uh, nobody is messing with the Mujahideen, right, uh, and uh, the, uh, the warriors there. And so the, the reality is that the raid is first and foremost by the Amalekites, set up by God, so that God can take this strategy or this tragedy and turn it into something that will glorify him by bringing, David's, by bringing David's sword, which is ultimately God's sword, in judgment against the Amalekites for their sin and for their wickedness. And so the Lord is at work in bringing David's men to, to, to come against the Amalekites, but they have to have or they needed an opportunity to express this judgment, and so God stirs up the raiders to raid these Amalekite raiders to seek out and to raid the, the base of operations of David. Now, second of all, there is David's reliance. There's a second factor, which is David's reliance upon the Lord. Because you look at chapter 30, David is very distraught from all of this, right? Because, uh, matter of fact, in chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, right? So all of his men were mad, their wives, their children, their flocks, everything was gone, their herds, and they were going to kill David. But in chapter 30, verse 7, listen to what, it, or chapter 30, verse 6, at the very end, listen to what it says, and then listen to what happens with David. But David encouraged, or literally strengthened himself in the Lord his God, and David said to Abiathar, Abiathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray you, bring me here the ephod. And Abiathar, Abiathar, brought from there the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he, that is the Lord, answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. So where was David's trust? Unlike Saul. I mean, this is clear cut here for us. Saul has just went and sought a necromancer, right? A woman with a familiar spirit to tell him what he should do. David, on the other hand, what does he do? He goes to the Lord asking for Abiathar to bring to him the ephod. And there through Abiathar, David makes intercession for God's will. Completely different people. Completely different commitments. And instead, I mean, we do also see, right, because back in chapter 28, it says that God had quit talking to Saul at all, either through, the, through uh, uh, Urim or Thummim or the Ephod or anything else. Why? Because Saul had commissioned the slaughter 
through Doag the Edomite to kill all of the priests of the Lord at Nob. Whereas David has taken in the Lord's anointed priests and has protected him and given him protection so that he may seek of the Lord. But thirdly, and it's interesting as you read this text, it just sort of happens, right? That they just, as they take, as they take in pursuit, it just so happened that they found an Egyptian with some information. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's just like, well, you know, it just so happened that David was dismissed from uh, Akish's uh, uh, campaign. And it just so happened they returned just after the capture of Ziklag and the raid on Ziklag. And it just so happened that there was a priest of the Lord. And it just so happened David sought the Lord. And it just so happened that they then found an Egyptian. Right. Well, nobody, no, nobody, if you know Scripture, nobody's believing that this just so happened. Right? This was all God's providential working. God's, God, even down to the very point of providing an Egyptian slave who had gotten sick and had magically, well, I shouldn't say magically, providentially recovered, right? He had gotten sick, he was left for dead, but oh, by the way, it's just poof, I got better three days later without any food, without any water, without anything, poof, I'm now better, and I'm now walking along the road that David just happens to be coming down. Does any of us believe that that was anything other than providence, right? God is providentially working, even in providing the Egyptian to give the information necessary. And then... In chapter 30, in verses 16 through 20, we see David take out and destroy the Amalekites. And it is interesting, though, and not only that, but there are two other opportunities, two other factors here that really go to show David's character. Yes, David at times could be very much a scoundrel, but his character, who he was, is revealed in two ways in this chapter as well. Unlike Saul in chapter 28, who sought out the necromancer, was very much playing favorites and didn't care and, and all of this about, about God's people. David, on the other hand, took care in chapter 30, verses 21 through 25. There were, there were a great many of the, of the army, uh, of his army, who had to stay behind because they were, they were exhausted and they were tired. And so they left them there. And there was a plot to say, well, you know what? These guys, they don't deserve anything other than what was theirs. Only give them what was theirs. Don't give them any of the spoils. And what is it that David says in chapter 30, verses 21 through 25? Let's look what it says here. And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint that they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they brought forth to meet David and to meet the people that were with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then they answered all the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them anything of the spoil that we, were, we, we have recovered, save or accept to every man his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart then David said, or then said David, you shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken to you in this matter? But as his part is, that goes down to the battle, so shall his part be, that tarries by the stuff or the baggage, they shall part alike. David says, no. No, we are going to be men 
of integrity. We are going to be men of character. We have, and God gives an opportunity for David's character to come shining through. And he does. He does. But not only this, there's a sixth factor here, which is simply this. There's an opportunity here, providentially, for David to show kindness to his friends, to, to, to literally uh, win friends and, and influence people. And this is what happens in 26 through 31. He sends even some of the spoils of war to them which were in Bethel, the men of Judah, the tribe of Judah, his own people. He showed kindness to his friends. He showed them great care, even to provide for their needs, even providing for their desires or what they, what they had need of. And it's amazing because um, if you know anything about some of these people, some of these people actually ratted David out. And David's going to send these people some of the spoils of war. Yes, because providentially, God is using this to slowly win the nation of Israel over to the kingship of David. Lastly, in verse chapter 31, we see judgment. And God is providential even in the judgment of Saul, isn't he? You see in chapter 31... The book of the book of Samuel, First Samuel, ends much like the book of Judges. It's not a great place. It's not a great place, but in, there is there is depression and there is great uh, horror. There is great death. There is great everything, just like in the book of Judges. And yet, we see God's providence being exercised here as well. And say, well, now how do we see this? Well, we see this because God kills Saul. You say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound very nice of God to kill Saul. But yet, isn't that exactly what God said to Saul would happen? Because he sought after the necromancer? Because he sought after what is commonly called the witch of Endor? God killed Saul because of Saul's transgression. Saul was previously only going to have the kingdom ultimately removed from him. But the moment Saul sought after a woman who had a familiar spirit, who was a necromancer, and she, she gave Saul what he was looking for. God promised to Saul through the prophet Samuel, who God sent back to Saul to pronounce judgment upon him, death. And this is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens. God is providential in bringing forth his judgment upon his, even his people. And truthfully, if you were to ask me, is Saul one of God's people? I'm going to have to tell you, I don't know the answer to that. Is Saul one of God's people? I don't know. Perhaps he was, perhaps he was not. I don't know. He could have been, but I'm not going to be any more shocked if he is in hell than if he is in heaven. Because we just don't know whether or not Saul was a believer. But as a result of this, not only does God judge Saul, God destroys the army of Israel. Now, why would God destroy Israel's army? To disgrace his people, 
You say, now, Pastor, that just doesn't seem like God. Why would God disgrace his people? God allows the destruction of the army of Israel and the disgrace of his people because his people are following the dictates of a wicked king who should have been resisted. Militarily, no. Uh, No, not at all. But Saul ordered many different wicked things. And God's people stood by as he slaughtered God's priests at Nob. God's people stood by as Saul sought to destroy and slaughter David. God's people stood by and did nothing when God's own people were persecuted and the prophets were persecuted and were destroyed by Saul. And so God says, if this is who you are going to follow and you will not follow me or my law, I will allow you to be disgraced that I might bring grace from this disgrace, that I might show mercy in the midst of this disgrace by giving you a king after my own heart, by giving you a man who will follow me and will execute my law as I have commanded. And in all of this, we see God's judgment, even in the fact that, even in the midst of judgment, there is grace. We say, now, how, how do you see that? Well, look with me here in chapter 31, verses 11 through 13, right? It says this, And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, they had stripped him naked, they had hung him up, uh, they had hung his corpse upon a wall, okay, And all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So even in the midst of God bringing Saul and Jonathan and the sons of Saul to their destruction, God is still showing grace here in that he does not ultimately allow complete and utter Uh, disgrace to be put on display he is protecting his people from a from him from complete and utter disgrace and he is showing even in the dedication of the men of Jabesh Gilead their 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 dedication and grace in that of course we do have to ask the question where have been the men of Jabesh Gilead right why weren't they in the battle and that's a story for a different day But let me illustrate this by by saying this. There is a story uh, of John Wesley. Maybe you know who John Wesley is or maybe you don't. But John Wesley's father was a man by the name of Samuel who was a very dedicated, Samuel Wesley, who was a very dedicated pastor. And there were were those in his parish who who absolutely hated uh, Samuel Wesley. So much so that it is, it is rumored. So, so this part was true. In 1709, in February 9th, 1709, a fire broke out in the, in the, in the church, which uh, would also have housed the pastor, right? And so um, broke out, and um, many believe that it was one of these enemies that set fire uh, and tried to destroy uh, Samuel Wesley. I can't imagine possibly hating your pastor enough that you're trying to burn, his, burn him alive, but... Nonetheless, that is the case. 
And yet John was six years old, John Wesley was six years old and was stranded, ended up being stranded in an upper floor of the building. Two neighbors ended up rescuing him just seconds before the roof crashed in. And one neighbor literally stood on the other neighbor's shoulder and pulled the young man out of the window as he gagged and choked on the smoke. Samuel Wesley would later say that, Come neighbors, let us kneel down. Let us give thanks to God, for he has given me all eight of my children. Let the house go. I am rich enough. John Wesley later would actually refer to himself as a brand plucked out of the fire. And in later years, he would note that February the 9th, uh, in his own journal, February the 9th, was a day for him to give great thanks to God and to his mercy. And this is true for all of us. I mean, as we're facing a new year, is this not a time and a day for us to rejoice and to give thanks to God for his mercy? So let me, let, me, let me close this out by showing you two final things. First, let me show you Christ in our text. Christ in our text. One, Jesus, in contrast to David, trusted his father and never faltered in his faith. His faith in the father and in the father's plan. So unlike David, Jesus trusted the father and didn't try to go to the enemies of God, but trusted the father even to the point of going to the cross. Second of all, Jesus, in contrast to David, was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Thirdly, Jesus cannot and will not lose any of his own. But he has rescued us from sin and hell through the power of the gospel. And lastly, or fourthly, Jesus is David's greater son who rules and reigns even now upon the throne of David and has purchased his people by his own blood. And lastly, God alone receives honor and glory from the victory and faithfulness of Jesus Christ, our conquering King and Messiah. I think these are important contrasts for us to keep in mind here as we, we think about David and how Jesus, the greater son of David's greater son, fulfilled uh, being God, man, God and man, fully God and fully man, fulfilled in much greater ways David's role. Lastly, let me just give you some application here. Christian, you and I can have absolute confidence that God in every circumstance in our life is going to keep and protect us. There is nothing that is, takes God by surprise. There is nothing that is going to <clears throat> keep God from rescuing us to the, to, the, to, the end of to the end of our days and the end of time. Uh, us from our sin or from death or from hell. Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, keeps his people. Second of all, David, David is now a typically wayward servant of God. And he has made, I think, a classic mistake to which you and I are very prone as well. You say, well, now, Pastor, how are you and I prone to what David does? Well, how many times do you and I attempt to lead a double life? David lived a double life. David lived with the Philistines, acting like he was with them, acting like he would go along with them for the sake of being protected from Saul, right? Again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So he goes along. And how often are you and I the same? Perhaps in our jobs, perhaps in our recreation, perhaps in many different ways, we, we lead a double life. 
we, we don't make waves. We, we don't want to make waves in the world or with the world. We, we, we just want to go along to get along. And we just, we just want to, to, to just live our lives. So we don't say anything. We don't do anything to make any waves. All the while, we say we follow Christ. All the while, we say and profess faith in Jesus Christ. So for the sake of our financial security, for the sake of being able to have good, uh, good money in reserve, or for the sake, of, the sake of, of, of religious devotion to whatever it is, careers or compromises in our integrities to our workplaces, because we desire pleasure and approval, so we drink down the trough from the trough of the, the, worldly, uh, the worldliness of the world. All the while we say we are desiring the eternity in heaven. God's eternity in heaven. And so for Sunday, we go back and we pay our homage. We pay our respects to the God of the Bible. And so the question really is, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves much like David, living in two worlds. Now, surely we are obviously going to live in two worlds, right? But God told us in Romans chapter 12 to... to to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? This is what we're called to do. Not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so we must be careful that while we live in the world, we don't act like the world. and We don't live in the world in such a way that the world assumes that we are one of theirs. Lastly, brothers and sisters, we can be, pro- we can be men and women who takes God's promises and places our trust in them. In Saul's case, it was judgment. In David's case, it was rescue. For us who are in Christ, we look to Christ. We are warned to love and to follow Christ and not to turn away from him. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27 The writer of Hebrews tells us clearly that if we ever do, we can only have a fearful expectation of judgment that awaits us. So while we are secure in Christ, we know that if if we do not love Christ, we don't belong to Christ. If we do not love Christ, we do not belong to Christ. It doesn't matter how many times we say we believe in Christ or belong to Christ. But as God's sons and daughters, if we do believe in Christ, if we do know Christ, if we have trusted in Christ, then we can take God's promise of security and protection to the the proverbial bank to follow Christ and to serve Christ. So let us be careful. Let us be watchful of of our lives and in our hearts that we be not led astray, but that we follow the Lord wholeheartedly by God's grace, like David, for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together in the Word. We thank you for our time together in 1 Samuel. Um, Almost a year's worth of time in 1 Samuel. As we close in that time, we, we, we thank you for it. And uh, we thank you for all the truths, all the faithfulness that you have, you have led us to see as we've looked. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you that Jesus is the greater fulfillment. He is the greater David who, who uh, came and lived sinlessly, who came as fully God and fully man to die on the cross for our sin. 
who rose again on the third day, that all who repent and believe may be saved. So God, now this is our prayer. That you would help us as your people to continue on in faith. And God, for those who do not know Christ, that they would humble themselves and repent of their sins and to come to Christ by faith. And God, be glorified now, we pray in Jesus' name.